Now, what we're going to do just now is we're going to look again at the, the first letter of John. We've been looking at that over recent weeks. We're going to continue this morning. Now, now, what's going to happen is, um, as you know, some of us are, are going away to Israel on Tuesday. And so because of that, um, the two passages I'm going to look at are really connected together. So I'll be looking at First John again tonight. So I'm going to read from chapter 18 of chapter, sorry, chapter 2, verse 18. And we read, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you, about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And then from chapter 4 and verse 1, we read there, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming, and which even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Let's just come and let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you again that you give us all the things that we need in your word and in the spirit through your church you give us all that we need 
to be able to live our Christian lives individually and also for, able to, for us to be able to live as a church in the way that we should. You help us and give us everything we need to discern what is true from what is false. So, Father, we pray you'll help us clearly to see and understand how we can recognize the spirit of Antichrist in our world. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what would you say is the, the biggest problem that faces the church of today? Apathy and lack of commitment from those within the church? Disinterest, disbelief, skepticism from those outside the church? I wouldn't argue with any of these as problems, but let me share with you quotes from Roy Clements and from G.K. Chesterton that puts, I think, a slight twist on things and throws something else into the mix. For Roy Clements, he says that the greatest problem for the church today is not so much the rise of scientific skepticism in the last hundred years or so as the growth of public gullibility. And G.K. Chesterton, underlining this, he once famously said that when people abandon the truth, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. You know, as you really look at things, you see this, I think, working its way out. Because the church responds pretty well to outright attack. But when we are faced by subtle deflection, well then great swathes of the church just seem to fall for it again and again. I mean, in the communist states, over a, a long period of time, outright physical persecution and every imaginable intellectual weapon and argument was used to try and destroy the faith of the people of God. But what did we find at the end of it all? We found a people who'd been refined by this persecution and who had clung all the harder to their faith. In our country, though, by contrast, we've not been faced by outright attack. No, we have faced something much, much more subtle. Christian faith has been subtly undermined because, you see, our society has told us, believe if you want, but you're crazy if you do. For Christianity today is irrelevant. It's been disproved. And day after day, subtly, so subtly, the whole breadth of the media conspires to keep that same message whirring away gently in our ears. And just one example that sticks in, in my mind was a few years ago, David Attenborough appeared on our television screens during the news program proclaiming that at last, the missing link, long sought for, that proves Darwin's theory of evolution had been discovered. And there was a big fanfare on the news. Now, since then, I've learned that this discovery has actually been found now not to be what it was thought to be. Has that been on the news? Has David Attenborough been on the television to share this? No, he's, he has not. And so the vast majority of the general public still believe that another nail has been driven into the coffin of faith. 
Society has been deceived. And so often, the church too has been deceived. And as we haven't had to fight for our faith, so we've often let true faith, a faith based on real truth, we've let that faith trickle through our fingers. And as in our society have lost go, have let go, sorry, of biblical faith, well, so as, as Chesterton prophesied, they have come to believe not nothing, but rather to believe in anything. Because so many weird and wonderful things have filled that faith vacuum that exists today in our society. Now, we'll look at, at one or two other examples of this, maybe a little bit later, but not the least of these, though, of course, is the kind of airy-fairy folk religion of the man and woman out on the street. The person who isn't sure if there really is a God, who doesn't care all that much if there is a God. The person who isn't that good, but who isn't that bad also, but who one day is convinced that nevertheless, despite all this, they are going to go to the heaven of the God that they're not sure they believe in. You know, if all of this is making you feel a bit downcast about society and about the church of, of today, then I would say, don't despair. Because although things are bad today, they've certainly been this way many times before. In fact, the New Testament church in general, and this church in particular that John is writing to here, they seemed to thrive on persecution. They seem to thrive when there's an outright attack on their faith. On their faith. The violent opposition of the Roman state, the mockery they faced from the intellectual elite of this time, all of this made not one iota of difference to them except to make them stand all the firmer. But where they fell down also was that they too allowed their faith to be undermined. They too believed the lie. Now, just what this lie was, the lie that was fed to them by false teachers, we've, we've looked at this in detail previously, so I'm not going to dwell on it right now. We'll, we'll say what needs to be said when necessary as we go along. But for now, I'd ask you just to please try and embed that thought into your mind, that the real problem of society and the church then and now is gullibility in believing the line. And just hold on to that thought and let's explore it together, looking first of all at the source of the lie. And that can be summed up in a word, antichrist. Antichrist, of course, there's a sense in which you could say actually that the source of the lie is the devil, for behind the antichrist stands the devil. But as antichrist, as the devil's main strategic outlet against both society and the church, with it being then vitally important that we understand just what Antichrist is all about, and as Antichrist is the focus of the passages we're looking at, so we'll focus first on Antichrist now. And the first thing I think it's important to understand is that the prefix anti in Greek can mean two different things. It can mean against, in which case the word Antichrist means an opponent of Christ. Or it can also mean in place of. So that Antichrist means then 
a substitute for or a counterfeit Christ. Now, I, I believe as we look at the breadth of what the Bible teaches, it would seem that, that both of these are true in the Bible of Antichrist. And the Antichrist often begins so very subtly, pretending even to be a friend of Christ. Then very gradually, Christ is moved to the one side, and still Antichrist stands in the place of Christ as a counterfeit Christ. But once there, then the wraps come off. Then the pretense is over, and Antichrist is revealed then as an implacable opponent of Christ and of all who stand with Jesus Christ. Another important thing to, to realize about Antichrist is that there are places in the Bible, and particularly here in, in John's letter, where Antichrist is spoken of as a spirit. A spirit, the spirit of Antichrist. And yet there are also other places in the Bible, such as the, the book of, of Daniel, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Antichrist is seen very much as an individual as a man, as a person. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, where it says, Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped and even sets himself up in God's temple, pretending himself to be God. Now the way that I would suggest all this fits together is that in, in as it says here in 1 John 2.18, in the last hour, in the last days, which I believe stretch from Christ's first coming to his second coming, that is, we are in the last days. In these days, the spirit of Antichrist is at work. In precisely the way we've outlined opposing Christ, counterfeiting Christ, and doing this by working through various individuals and various institutions. However, as these last days reach their climax, as the ultimate end itself comes upon us, well then the Bible would seem to suggest, suggest that we can expect one last final intensification of evil and one final terrible manifestation of Antichrist. While though we, we wait with a mixture of, of joy and of dread for that day, because remember terrible though it will be and terrible though Antichrist will be, Yet his coming will also herald the imminent second coming of Christ. But while we wait for the final coming of Antichrist, we do continue to see the spirit of Antichrist very much at work in our day, just as John did in his. But how can we, we recognize this? Moving away from the, the generalities we've mentioned of Opposing Christ, counterfeiting Christ. What is the most common specific that again and again we find the spirit of Antichrist centering in on? Well, we'll move on to look at that as we look now at the nature of the lie. And what is the nature of the lie? 
What is it that most commonly stands at the very heart of Antichrist's attack on society and on the church? It is an attack on the nature of Jesus Christ. As verse 22 of 1 John 2 says, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Now, as we've seen very clearly, I think, over the past few months, this was very much a characteristic of the the false Gnostic teaching that John faced. For at the heart of their teaching was a denial of the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus, the one who is both truly God and at the same time holy man, all in one person. Instead, what they said, and and this we can deduce both from what the Bible says and other historical evidence, documents that have been found, what they said is that Jesus was an ordinary human being who was indwelt by the Spirit, Christ, from his baptism in the Jordan right up till just prior to his crucifixion. Now, this teaching had a, a number of effects, but the main one, of course, was that it It demolishes entirely. Not just alters slightly, but it demolishes entirely orthodox Christianity. Because if he who died on the cross was not both God and man, then that cross has no real significance. For he who died had to be holy man because a man had to die to pay for the sin of man. But he also had to be truly God. Because only God could offer the sacrifice of a perfect life. Only God could offer that sacrifice that was needed to cleanse all mankind from all their sin. But one, just one incredible result of, of, of this teaching that, that I came across that was that one group of these Gnostic false teachers who, remember, claimed to be Christians... They had as as part of their creed, they had as part of their statement of faith, one particular statement that for me stands out, and it's this. Jesus is cursed. Jesus is cursed. Now, just try and follow the the kind of distorted logic that they were using here. They weren't saying that Christ is cursed. They weren't. No, they were just cursing what they saw as the evil bodily encumbrance, which for them, the spirit Christ, had been forced to occupy for a time on earth, namely Jesus. But I want to also say, don't be misled by this extremism. Because these false Gnostic teachers are not unique. They are not by any means. No, what stands at the heart of their heresy has actually stood at the heart of almost every single heresy in history. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, many Far Eastern religions, the New Age uh, movement, which contains elements of almost everything, although most of these groups would still claim an affinity with Jesus or even an affection for Jesus, give him some kind of place. Yet the fact is that all of these are heresies that reject the Christ of Scripture. 
They don't attack him outright. No, rather, you see, they too subtly undermine them. And by doing that, they win the gullible away. They bring the gullible to believe the lie and reject the truth of God's word. And please, I would ask you to understand and please remember, please be aware that most of these heresies can actually track their origins back to the ranks of orthodox Christianity. That's where they started. Just one example, Mormonism and its founder, Joseph Smith. He began as an orthodox Methodist, but he was known to be unstable and to be wayward. And then in 1823, he claimed to receive a visitation from an angel, Marodi, who directed him some, to some gold plates that were hidden on a hill near Palmyra in New York State. And according to Smith, these plates were inscribed with ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, which he was enabled miraculously to translate by means of a specially provided pair of angelic spectacles. Oh dear. Anyway, this translation that, that, that he got provided extraordinary facts about the, the early American continent. Not least the fact that America was not in fact discovered by, by Christopher Columbus, but by a Jewish prophet called Lehi 600 years before Christ. And that Christ himself appeared after his resurrection to the descendants of this ancient Jewish family in the New World. Now, that's where Mormonism began. What has emerged from this, though, is a cult where the Book of Mormon is exalted over the Bible, where the Trinity is denied, where Christ's divine nature is seen simply as a matter of progression. That is, he differs from us only in the degree to which He's climbed up the divine ladder and we can do the same. And where the cross is virtually meaningless because salvation is again in their understanding of works, peculiarly Mormon works, rather than by grace through faith. But you know, when the Mormons come to your door, the first thing they'll tell you is that they are Christians. That's the first thing they'll say today, that, that Mormonism is just another church. It's just the church of the Latter-day Saints. And they portray themselves as friends of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, I don't believe that the young men and women who come around the doors usually mean to deceive. Most of them sincerely believe what they tell you because they too have swallowed the lie of the spirit of Antichrist. But when they come at first, they will come as friends. And they try and persuade you, they'll say to you that they share much in common with traditional Christianity. It's just that they've got greater insights, greater understanding. And I've shared with these young, young people, young men, usually on a number of occasions, and just ask them to explain the texts in the Bible that focus on grace and faith and that directly contradict Mormonism. That rattles them. Then ask them why, while there are innumerable archaeological sites and artifacts that back up what the Bible teaches and the Bible's view of history, ask them why there is nothing 
Not one archaeological site, not one item found that backs up Joseph Smith's view and his story of a Jewish tribe in America. That I've found really rattles them to the point of anger. I've annoyed one or two. But you see, Mormonism does start off portraying itself as friends with Christ. They do start off emphasizing the similarities there are between them and the church. But once they win the gullible, then the wraps come off. And at this point, this movement stands revealed as an enemy of Jesus Christ, inspired by that spirit of Antichrist. But you know how tragic it is, though, that, that though the teaching of Mormonism is so incredible, up to and beyond the point of ludicrous, and so totally contradictory in so many ways to the plain teaching of the Bible, yet still that it has grown to have over 40 million adherents worldwide. You see how the gullible are ready to believe the lie. And, and please don't let's deceive ourselves that this isn't continuing to happen in our day and closer to home. I mean, theological liberalism ravaged the church in this country for over a hundred years and more. And at the heart of its teaching was that same attack on the nature of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Emphasizing his humanity, and it was said to make him more accessible to the man on the street, but at the same time, denying his deity in a way that actually makes him worthless and meaningless to any man. Now, a few years ago, I would have probably said that the influence of liberalism as it once was, uh, it's kind of died away and it's much less of a threat to, to Orthodox Christianity. Do you know, I wouldn't say that now. Because what we have today, I believe, is a new liberalism that's actually emerging out of the ranks of evangelicalism and still claiming to be evangelical while denying central biblical truths that strike again at the very heart of who Jesus Christ is and what he has achieved. For instance, in the United States, Brian McLaren in 2005 was recognized by Time magazine as one of the 25 most influ influential evangelicals in America. In 2009, and I complained about it, he was invited by Scotland to the Evangelical Alliance and given a, a platform by them, and that's what bothered me. It's not that he came to speak, but it was the platform he was given. Given a platform by the Evangelical Alliance, with the imp implication being that he is an evangelical. But this, for instance, this is one of his comments, many comments, on evangelism. This is what he says. I don't believe making disciples must equal making adherence to the Christian religion. It may be advisable in many circumstances to help people become followers of Jesus and remain within their Buddhist, Hindu, or Jewish context. It's just crazy. Then there's my, my old friend, Steve Chaut. He is a friend of mine, a lovely guy, Steve, who now no longer believes that on the cross, Christ died in our place to pay the penalty of our sin but rather that all the cross is, is a symbol of love that's to get us to love all the more. 
At a recent evangelical conference, Steve was described as a rational liberal. That is now among those who replace God's revelation with human reasoning. And because of that, with regret, I have to agree with the words of the American theologian Don Carson, who says that I have to say, as kindly but as forcefully as I can, that to my mind, if words mean anything, both McLaren and Chalk have largely abandoned the gospel. But you see, that's there, but the facts are that they are both still being accepted as out-and-out evangelicals by many within evangelicalism. And please, again, don't get me wrong, these men, they're charming individuals. I'm sure captivating speakers. And much of what they say is right. And many of the criticisms they make of traditional Christianity are valid. But that does not change the fact that the heart of their theology now is miles away from what the Bible teaches. But many Christians don't seem, including Christian leaders, don't seem that concerned about this. Rather because someone like, say, Steve speaks with such energy and passion because he's done and achieved so much that is good in his ministry through Oasis. Because of this, people just take and accept, take on board what he says wholesale. How gullible we are. How gullible. We've looked then at the nature of the lie. Let's move on to look at the disguise of the lie. It's for even taking it for granted that some people are incredibly gullible and naive. Yet we'd have to believe, would we not, that if the lie was stated just as plainly and straightforwardly as I've tried to do it, that many more people, they would see through it and reject it out of hand. But of course it's not like that. The lie is disguised. This bitter pill is given a nice sweet sugar coated. Now we've just looked at this to an extent, but, but John gives us a bit more of an insight into what was happening in his day this time in chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now you see, again, and this is something we've seen repeatedly in, in, in recent weeks, again we, we want to say that, that these Gnostics were leaders, teachers, who valued experience over doctrine. Who went round saying, don't bother with all that, that doctrine and teaching stuff because that's dull and boring. It's going to make you dull and boring. Instead, come to us and just take part in what we're doing. Our exciting initiation rites. Our exciting religious ceremonies and worship times. Just come along and experience what we've got to offer. And that experience itself will lift you higher. Take you closer to God than you have ever been before. That was their, their basic philosophy. However, it would seem that the means by which they managed to gain acceptance for this, to persuade people to, to go for this, and the, the heretical teaching that, that emerged from it, the way they did this was by means 
of prophecy. I'm pretty sure a dramatic, spectacular display of prophecy. So what in all probability happened was that the gullible, the naive within the people of God, they watched this going on, this this prophecy dramatically played out in front of them. And as, as I'm sure the act was very good and it all was very sensational. So they decided, they were impressed by this, that what these men said, it must be true. Now let me tell you that this process is one that has been repeated time and again down through history. This kind of process stands at the heart of almost every heresy. We've already looked at it and mentioned Mormonism. But Jehovah's Witnesses, things like Theosophy, New Age, etc., they are all the same. At the beginning of all of these, we find men who in one way or another claim an extra-biblical revelation from God that something new has been revealed to them. And they get the gullible to believe in that revelation. And often they do that because of the spectacular trappings that they dress it up with. Though in the case of liberalism, the disguise is actually, supposed intellectual superiority of its teachers. But no matter what, once they've got the gullible to believe the lie, they then use the lie to lead them away from God, away from truth. But it's all so foolish. And it's also so unnecessary. Because here John tells us what we need to do. That we should test the spirits. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, he tells us to weigh, to test prophecy. Well, if we're going to weigh something, or if we're going to test something, how do we do it? Well, obviously, we've got to have a benchmark. We've got to have a standard to set it against, to measure it against. And I would argue that the only acceptable test for a supposed new word from God, new teaching from God, is the word that we already have. So if someone claims that they're hearing something new from God, then that revelation, I believe, has to either preferably emerge directly from God's word, or it at least, before we even begin to think of it, has to be seen to be in harmony with God's word and with God's character. But if somebody brings a supposed word from God that is inconsistent with that, then wherever else that, that word has got its origins, I don't know, we can be sure that it is not the Lord. Because as the Bible tells us, God is ever unchanging and ever consistent. And so is his word. Now, there's much more that can be said about how we can test whether something is, is really from God and it's right here in this passage, but we'll look at that a bit more uh, tonight, if that's okay. Let me finish, though, with a word first for those of us who are Christians. That is, don't be gullible. Don't accept what someone says because they sound convincing and plausible, because it's all packaged in a dramatic and spectacular way. Don't just accept it because of that. Test everything against the Word of God. And finally, a word to those here who maybe 
aren't Christians, who don't have a living, life-transforming relationship with God through Christ. That is, maybe you've previously written off Christianity because you've been told that it's just a load of old wives' tales. You've been told that Jesus is just a fairy tale figure and you've been convinced that, that to believe is some kind of intellectual suicide. What I want to tell you now is that that is a lie. That is the lie. But don't just believe me. Look at the evidence for yourself. I'm not afraid of that. Look at the evidence. For I believe that the evidence backs up what the Bible says. Look at the Bible then. Look at real science. Look at history. Look at archaeology. And look and see, learn how Jesus Christ through history has changed lives in a way no one else ever has. Because I tell you, there's a lot more to Jesus. There's a lot more to faith than simply intellect. But I am convinced that there is a sound argument in evidence, a sound foundation for believing in the God of the Bible, for believing in Jesus. But don't just listen to me. And certainly, don't just listen to the voices out there that tell you not to believe. No, look for yourself. I could help suggest the material if you want to do that. But look for yourself. Because you owe that to yourself. But much more than that, you owe that to the Jesus who died for you. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the greatness of your love toward us in Jesus. We want to thank you that you've provided us with everything we need to live and to discern truth in our world. Father, help us to take hold of what you've given us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.